Hello everyone, Adam Beck here for another Smart Cities Week podcast. Uh, I'm Smart Cities Week Chairman and have the delight of bringing to you today another episode where we're featuring uh, leaders within the community in which we're going to be hosting Smart Cities Week uh, in San Diego and its surrounding communities. Uh, I'm joined today by Mayor Serge Tadina, uh, the Mayor of Imperial Beach in California. Serge, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Um, so, Serge, I wanted to start by um, getting you to share with our listeners a little bit about the the personality, the features, the uh, the attributes of Imperial Beach. Um, a lot of our attendees at Smart Cities Week often come from far and wide places. Um, so, can you give us a bit of a bio on your community that you're mayor of? Yeah, so Imperial Beach is a little bit of a throwback. It's what the Southern California coast used to be. It's still actually a working class, mostly minority, uh, small town of 28,000 people. And we're located right at the US-Mexico border. So we're the last town on the California coast and actually the most southwesterly city uh, in the United States. And it's a real kind of a funky, sleepy town and very friendly. We're four square miles and we're completely surrounded by water on three sides. So on the west, to our west is the beautiful Pacific Ocean. We're a great uh, surfing beach. We have a big fishing pier that's really popular. To our south, we have what's called the Tijuana Estuary, which is a big wetland. And it's actually the largest remaining coastal wetland in Southern California. And uh, it's a national wildlife refuge and a California state park. And offshore from it, we have actually one of the largest marine protected areas in Southern California. And then to our north, we have the south end of San Diego Bay, which is also a national wildlife refuge and considered to be one of the best birding areas. We have literally tens and tens of thousands of birds that are nesting in salt ponds just north of our city limits on the bayfront. So it's a really remarkable area. And then of course, um, if you look just for the south um, from our city, you'll see the US-Mexico border. And our city actually touches the border at what's called Borderfield State Park. It's the last stretch, a last limit of, of Southern California. So we're a kind of, a, again, a kind of a throwback to what you used to get in, in Southern California, which were the typical working class beach cities that really have disappeared. So it's a fun place to visit and walk around and, and kind of get, get, get back in touch with California's past, but also really see a city and a region that have committed to ecotourism and nature conservation as a, sort of a tenant of our urban development strategy. Thank you for that. I, um, I, I find that fasc fascinating in terms of the, the size and the, and the natural features uh, around Imperial Beach. Um, can you give me a sense of whether, I mean, is Imperial Beach, is it, is it, is it a community that's sort of been frozen in time? Um, are, you, are you being sort of influenced or touched by, you know, the, the rapid pace of change and the way in which our lives are being influenced by things like technology? How, how do you describe sort of Imperial Beach in terms of its, its sort of um, connection and uh, influence with what's going on in the world more broadly? Well, you know, we've been a, a, a pretty much of a backwater in terms of investment and we're very typical of an underserved area in Southern California. We really didn't get those economic investment dollars. We had a lot of low-income housing. 70% of our housing is renter occupied. And so, you know, we struggled with the same things that many cities do, and that's just the lack of everything, the lack of technology, the lack of infrastructure. 
the lack of adequate housing for our residents, the lack of a, a grocery store. In, in, you know, many of our streets, our alleys weren't paved. Um, we didn't have crosswalks. Many side neighbors didn't have sidewalks. So really, you know, we, that's that's changing with the way the economy is changing with the urban infill economy and, and more focus on smart cities. We've been able to attract about $100 million in investment in terms of building our first hotel that generates you know, a hotel tax so we can put that money back into the community. And we've really started an ambitious program of infrastructure development. So, you know, things like safe streets and safe routes to school, um, and then doing things like paving those alleys to reduce stormwater runoff and make sure people in wheelchairs can get to their homes. Um, doing all the kinds of things that an underserved community really was lacking. And so that's really been our goal. And I, I think technology um, and the pace of change has just exacerbated and accelerated the change we're in. And, Obviously, a lot of our residents are concerned with that because along with that, along with the rest, and similarly to what's going on in the rest of California, rents are going up, home prices are going up. So people feel a little bit stressed right at the moment because they're, they're not feeling like they're keeping up. But to give you an example of how we're taking advantage of technology um, and, and even infrastructure development, um, we're doing a, a road, uh, redoing one of our main roads to make it a safe route to school and make it safer for riding your bikes and, and walking to school for a, over a thousand children that go to school along that, that, that road. And we're taking advantage of it to put fiber optic cable under the roadway and then improve our sewer system. So we look at this sort of era of combined projects as the future for us in which we try to take advantage of doing infrastructure projects and answer many questions. So a road project becomes a stormwater reduction project, becomes a fiber optic technology project and a way for kids to get to school safely. So it's really all of the above when it comes to figuring out how we do smart development and, be, and become smart, a smart city. The only problem with us is because we are a low income community and we're a small community, it's a lot harder to leverage those investment dollars and attract the kind of uh, money that we need to do cool stuff. And that's been one of our concerns is that we're just not big enough to attract the kind of people and projects and technology that maybe a larger city uh, might find it easier to attract. Yeah, I think that's um, that, that, that's really fascinating. And, and at the Smart Cities Council, we've always certainly uh, been an advocate for making sure that, um, that this Smart Cities agenda sort of doesn't leave anyone behind and in many places in many countries indeed it's often viewed as a as a big city urban agenda only those big cities can afford it um, i think we are seeing more and more uh, opportunities where we have smaller communities even regional and rural communities that are making the most sort of you know modest uh, technology and, and data investments but really leveraging it for sort of greater social impact um, in terms of priorities for your community, you've, you've touched on some of those major infrastructure. Um, can you give me a little bit more of a sense of those natural attributes and features of the community and, and the surrounding environments of Imperial Beach? Can you give me a sense as to sort of what, what sort of the priorities and strategies are with respect to really uh, enhancing the, the conservation value and, and the value of nature? And I just wonder whether there might be um, might be opportunities there for technology and data solutions to help in achieving those objectives and priorities of the city. Yeah, well, that, that that's a great question. And you know, I grew up in a city, and I've been here since I was seven years old. And uh, getting a career as a, I'm a ocean conservationist, actually fighting to save all the open space, so the wetlands and ocean area around my city. And uh, and now I'm a professional conservationist, and, and, and in addition to being mayor and 
it used to be considered that open space and blue space and green space was the enemy of progress. And mm -hmm. so subsequent administrations that spent all their effort on successfully trying to develop and destroy all the open space that essentially defines us and it defines our future. And now, thankfully, over the last few years, you know, and, and even since I was elected, we really switched that frame to really look at the future of ecotourism. But more importantly, obviously, seeing this blue and green space as a natural asset. And with the issue of climate change adaptation and sea level rise um, and the need to do adaptation and even mitigation now with vis-a-vis -vis blue carbon, the idea of sequestering carbon visa uh, via natural climate solutions, all of a sudden we realize, thank God we, we helped to conserve those areas were conserved because now they're our most important natural asset. And it really is saving us huge amounts of money in terms of reducing you know, uh, flood, flood risk and even uh, allowing ourselves to, to do a much better job and more effective job of adapting to sea level rise. And I'll give you one example of how we're using one of those assets to our example, to our benefit economically. We share an open space area with the city of San Diego and the port of San Diego. They're going to be doing a mitigation bank in which basically developers pay into this mitigation bank and they'll restore a, a, an 80 acre, about a 30 hectare uh, parcel of wetland, it's now a salt flat, into a fully thriving functional wildlife habitat. And we'll actually, we think we can make between 30 to 40 million dollars off that. We'll split between the agencies and that money will go back into economic investment and development opportunities in low income neighborhoods that will help those areas be more resilient to climate change. So that's a really, really uh, important tool for us. And I think the new way of looking at these natural areas as assets to be conserved and invested in ter terms of making them more resilient is a really uh, great way of, of helping us. And, and in terms of, I think, in technology, really, you know, the science that we've been working on in terms with, with partners like the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which is just up the coast in La Jolla, and one of the world's great, you know, great oceanographic institutions, has really helped us get a handle on the sea level rise um, piece of that, as well as off our coast. So Scripps just instituted our and put it in our our own buoy off the coast, so we can actually do uh, real time flood forecasts when we have big storms, and that came into play a lot this year. In addition, we just launched a program today. We had a press conference today in which we worked with the County of San Diego and as well as Scripps and are doing some of the most advanced water quality testing uh, probably in the country, and that's because we have problems with uh, pollution from Mexico. So, you know, the technology and science and our work with world-class science scientists is really playing a major role in, in under, helping us understand how to take advantage of and, and really use science to, to be as resilient as possible and make the types of investments that will help um, get the most bang for our buck out of conserving and, and restoring these open space areas rather than developing them. And I think that only reinforces the idea that we need more investment back in our um, in our urban core. Um, and so we're not, you know, having these fights over conservation or development. We pretty much know where we can we can direct those investment dollars. Serge, I did notice when I was doing my research before we um, uh, we we were sort of planning this podcast. Uh, resilience was certainly a big theme, as you just touched on now. Um, can you give me a sense of the conversation and the dialogue with the community around resilience? I'm, I'm always fascinated as, as to how cities are engaging with their community on, on an issue like resilience and climate change, which sort of, you know, is very physical and tangible and you can feel it certainly at times when there's, 
when there's certain weather events. But then also, it's it's such a a, a long term issue as well. It's a very challenging one. How are you going about that conversation with your community? Yeah. So um, luckily, about four years ago, uh, a couple of foundations and then state agencies funded a, and supported a. Uh, sea level rise um, impact studies. We actually looked at the biophysical impacts of sea level rise and the economic impacts that sea level rise would have on our city. And the results came in. It was a very inclusive uh, process. We had 400 people uh, at one public workshop, the largest sort of gathering at any public workshop in our history. Um, and you know that was it was very uh, productive. And the results were pretty alarming. We looked at that. You know we found that about 30% of our city will be significantly impacted by sea level rise and coastal flooding over the last over the next hundred years and so obviously um you know the results came in but you know then we have a real problem that i that i i knew would happen and that's you know it's hard to get cities and and politicians like me and then people in the public to understand what's going to happen beyond one year let alone 100 years so i think we're now in the implementation phase of that and, and putting that information into our uh, local coastal plan update that's sort of like the general update general plan update for our coastal zone and obviously the stumbling blocks that I, I knew would happen did happen and that was you know because of social media and the type of political environment we're in now a bunch of folks decided that our process was going to be eminent domain and that I would personally you know going to destroy their homes three blocks inland from the beach and so the the need for us to go out and have one-to-one -one meetings with folks and really say hey that's not the issue we're looking at doing um, natural, you know, natural solutions, soft solutions, sand replenishment on our beach, and then looking at ways of working with nature instead of against it to address that um, it took some time, and it really underscored what I've always known is that how how important it is to communicate effectively, really in small groups and consistently when we talk about sea level rise and and, and, and climate change adaptation. So I think what it did was it opened the door to the conversation, but you know, rather than one plan and one process. It's really going to take cities, and you know that's whether it's in Australia or France or Mexico or the United States or you know, and here in Imperial Beach, a continual dialogue with our residents. But more importantly, using those storm events. So we had some pretty significant king tide flooding events over the last two months uh, in January and December, in which we saw the kind of flooding, just a little bit of big surf with a, some fairly normal high tides um, that we've never seen before. And we're trying to use those events to really illustrate that. Hey, the city is not the threat here. I'm not the threat. The threat is 25 foot surf and a high tide and incremental sea level rise. They're gonna is is really the issue, and let's all work together to figure out how to deal with it. So um, it's challenging, but we've decided as a city that we're going to embrace our role as a national leader in the United States and and, and getting people to have this conversation, not to ignore it, not to deny it, but to say, hey, the ocean's coming at us. By only by working together and figuring this out, um, we're going to have some luck in dealing with this. I mean, we're lucky that we have world-class scientists at Scripps um, that can help us sort of address this. And having uh, now Scripps having put, like I mentioned before, our own buoy, monitoring buoy off the coast, that they're trying to sort of help cities become flood ready has really helped as well. So you know, we're we're embarking on the path, and you know, it's like when you paddle out when the when the surf's firing, but it's a little stormy. It's uh, it's a tough paddle out, and it's not always easy to get in the waves. But we're gonna, we're sure going to try, and we're still going to keep going. And, and I sort of draw so many parallels to sort of you know life here in Australia, surrounded by water ourselves as a sort of an island nation. So um, I, I certainly uh, certainly resonates with me a number of those points. 
Just uh, a little extension to the, the topic of sort of dialogue and engagement surge. Um, I, I've spoken to a number of folks, um, you know, in the past few months in the in this sort of the area in the region. It seems like um, there there is a, a, a real strong culture of, of collaboration. Can you give me a little bit of a sense of how the city is, is working with other uh, cities, organisations, institutions? I know you you mentioned Scripps and others, but um, talk us through your sort of approach to collaboration and and sort of how how that's sort of playing a, a, a key role or otherwise in uh, in the work that you're doing. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny being a running a nonprofit ocean conservation organization. Um, you get used to having no power and no money, so it's all about <laughs> and and really working collaboratively to make things happen. And so it was a good segue into being mayor of a small city with no money because we have no money and no political capital, so we have to use all our social. But we have to continually be building political capital by collaboration and leveraging our partnerships and relationships. So you know what does that mean? It means that whether or not, it, for example, road projects. Well, our road projects we work on we next to another city with the city of San Diego. We collaborate with the city of San Diego on the planning part. We collaborate with our state government on the investment and funding part. We work with our regional transportation agencies, SANDAG, the San Diego Association of Governments, on some of the planning assistance. Um, because we're next to a United States Navy base, in fact, we have the world's largest uh, special warfare training base on our northern border um, with 3,000 Navy SEALs and other special warfare facilities. We have to train. We have to plan our road investments and and you know uh, signalization of our lights in partnership with the United States Navy, which involves working with our federal congressmen to appropriate money. So um, everything we do is involved. We we collaborate. We partner. We involve the nonprofit community, um, and that's very extensive in San Diego. And then you know we're on the US, United States Mexico border. So to address cross-border pollution, literally we almost have our own foreign policy. So I can find myself, as I did in the spring, dealing with the foreign minister of Mexico, as well as the, and I, having breakfast here with the ambassador of Mexico to the United States, as well as working with our own congressional delegation to allocate money to put investments along the United States-Mexico border, or working um, with international agencies. Um, like the International Boundary and Water Commission that work on both sides of the border. So everything we do is always a team effort because, you know, we just don't have the capacity or or, um, or political capital, economic capital to do things on our own. And frankly, it becomes much more of a win-win approach when we work together because it, it it's, just, it's just a natural extension of saying, hey, here's, a, here's some common issues we can work around. Let's make this a win-win by working together and finding a way to frame it so that everybody gets something out of it rather than everybody losing. So I actually really enjoy that part because I think it's the natural sort of skills you bring from a non, the nonprofit world. And I find that to be one of the most rewarding parts of being mayor and running a city is identifying all those partners who can't wait to be engaged um, and are looking for productive and positive ways to, to, to make a positive impact. And I think part of that is also explaining to the public um, about how we are making going to make an impact in their in their lives in a real way, and then going back and evaluating how you you work on those partnerships together and what you can do better next time. So it's been a really rewarding experience doing that. And for, for me as a as an ocean conservationist, just having the capacity to work with these science science institutions and use some of the new technologies coming out in ocean uh, related efforts um, in order to really help defend our defend our city or deal with things like sea level rise have been really exciting.
Serge, um, coming from the, the non-profit sector myself, um, I certainly cut my teeth into the world of collaboration um, with, with a number of organisations and um, I, I fundamentally agree, it, it can be so rewarding, uh, that, that sort of really deep level of trust and, and commitment for shared outcomes. So um, uh, lovely, lovely to sort of hear, hear you share those stories. Um, just a final one now before we, before we wrap, Serge. Um, and it's probably just more of a more of a personal one. You know, what is what is 2019 looking for you? What are you looking forward to this year? Share for us sort of what's on the horizon over the next sort of uh, year or two for, for the city of Imperial Beach. Yeah, so you know, I think the biggest issue with with anything in California, and this is whether it's a technology issue, the housing issue, the infrastructure issue, it's all about equity and, and equitable investment, and so we've really decided that this year becomes about affordable housing, that we really aggressively go after those affordable housing dollars at the state of California level, that we really work with the investment and developer community to make it clear that we expect them to do, if they have projects to come before us, to be inclusionary housing. So it's not just developer impact fees, but it's, it's really getting them to put that affordable housing in, in their projects. We think that's extremely important. And remember, we're a low-income community and we need we, and we still need all the low affordable housing we can get. And then I think the other piece of that is, you know, when we were in the wilderness in terms of having access to, to, to capital and, and infrastructure, our, our parks and rec programs really suffered. We lost our parks and rec department. You know, our city before me built the world's large, uh, smallest skate park. You know our swimming pool is falling apart that we share with the local high school so the second part of that is really doing sort of an equitable investment in parks and rec to make sure that every kid and every family and every senior um, has access to um, really world-class um, parks and rec facilities and i'm a big believer that it, you shouldn't have to be a millionaire to live like one i've been very impressed by traveling around australia to really see the commitment to parks and recreation and active recreation to make sure that every citizen can be engaged in, in a healthy life so you, you have to have a place to live to do that you need safe streets you know uh, good infrastructure on your streets but finally you need the cities and governments to really help provide those free or low-cost uh parks and rec facilities so people can have a fulfilling life and you shouldn't have to be a millionaire you should be a, you should be able to have a classic working class family uh, or maybe a single mom or three or four kids and those kids should have access to world-class uh, parks and rec facilities so that's something that's really driving us this year so it's been a delight talking to you this morning and we're very much looking forward to having you uh, take part in the program uh, at Smart Cities Week. Um, for, the, for this episode, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and we've been talking with uh, Mayor Serge Sardina, the Mayor of the City of Imperial Beach in California. Um, Serge will be part of the program at Smart Cities Week in San Diego. Uh, not long now, you can uh, register and go online at smartcitiesweek.com. Uh, look for Smart Cities Week San Diego running April 15 through 17. Uh, look forward to seeing you there. Uh, for now, we hope you keep well and we'll be coming to you soon with another Smart Cities Week podcast. My name is Adam Beck, Chairman of Smart Cities Week. It's been a delight to have you with us. Thank you very much.